0: me turn to philippians chapter 3 philippians chapter 3 this might be a part of philippians that you're familiar with sometimes this is this little passage here is on someone's favorite list anybody like that out here this is a passage that's on my favorite list no one's raising their hand come on well it might become your new favorite here as we look at it together uh, Philippians chapter 3, and take those outlines out um, inside the worship folders and, and, and look there. And if you notice, you were halfway through Philippians, and the first two sections, chapter 1 was on partnering in, in ministry for the gospel. Chapter 2 is on imitating uh, Jesus, a little bit about imitating Paul, and then Timothy and Epaphroditus in terms of sacrifice, in terms of humility, uh, Christian service, uh, and then this chapter here is about losing. And it's about losing confidence and then losing complacency. And this week, it's about losing confidence. And so if you take that outline, turn it back over on the front, and then we look at Philippians 3, maybe on, on your smartphone or a Bible or a pew Bible right in front of you or share it with a friend there. Um, last week, I told you that I had a friend, you know, it was an example to me when I was younger, on road biking, cycling. And... Uh, you know, the, the pro guys were too good for me to follow, but this friend was several years older, and he was a more experienced cyclist, and so he helped me learn and grow. I remember we talked about following his example. Well, consequently, we did some long bike rides, and I remember we trained, and I was in high school, I think, the first time, and we got up to the point where you do these 200-mile bike rides in a day, which I, it sounds and it sounds horrible, and it is. Anybody ever done a double century on a, on a bike? It's it's no fun. Um, and so I was able to do that and I wasn't setting any speed records but I worked up to it and we started really early in the morning It was the Davis double century down in northern California and started in the morning and finished you know after dark and the winners were way ahead but that wasn't the point the point was um, you know accomplishing and trying to cycle 200 miles in a day and you know what's the worst part by the way about cycling 200 miles anybody know? Yeah, the seat and how, <laughs> woo, man, it's horrible. So I did, that, I did that several times, but I remember right in the middle of that series where I did different cycling events like that, uh, one time I, I didn't train. And anybody who know what a SAG wagon is on a big event like that? Anybody seen those? SAG wagons are for people that don't make it. And in this case, there'll be buses or vans that will pick you up. And I remember I was about 120, 130 miles in on a double century one year, and I hadn't trained properly. And you know what? I, what's called sagged out, right? I didn't make it. I sagged out. Has anyone else ever had to jump on a sag way? Just me. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't gotten to our miles. <laughs> and I sagged out. And I remember just, you know, getting in the bus, and, you know... with all the other losers, right? Because we didn't make it. And I'd made it in the past, but I didn't this time. And I remember how horrible I felt because I hadn't performed to standard and to my standard because I know I could do it, but I didn't. And because I hadn't performed all the joy, I mean, I was not very joyous. And in fact, while I was on that bus, on the SAG wagon, uh, some friends and I had done a crazy bike ride on big wheels and done and, and, and some, some weird things. You can, all, you can ask me about it another time. And I heard them talking about this crew of guys doing these crazy things on bikes, and that was me! But I wasn't going to tell them because I was on the SAG bus, right? The sag, and I would sagged out. I wasn't going to say, hey, that was me. They'd be like, yeah, right, buddy, why are you on this bus then? Because I hadn't performed. I hadn't performed, and if joy is performance based, if we don't perform to standard, it's like a vacuum. If our relationship with Jesus is about performance, if our way and route to heaven is about performance, it's a joy sapper, right? you ever been in a relationship with maybe a husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend where you realize, wow, they're not in this unconditionally, they're in this if I perform for them one way or another. Maybe that's what the business world is like, right? Right? School efforts, military, whatever it might be. But if relationship becomes performance based, um, the joy can be set. Some of us might be um, really good you say, yeah, I'm a high performer, right? But everyone, you know, there's always someone that can do it better. And eventually, that joy's gonna be sucked out. Here's this is I think the first eleven verses is that we're called to lose confidence in ourselves to, to win Christ. And I put on your outlines we receive joy in the experience of God's grace, right? Verse one, look at it. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. So remember, a, a key theme in Philippians is about having joy. And I know where Paul's going here, so you, you might think I'm reading too much into this, but he's contrasting, he's contrasting grasping performance or gracious pardon. What's it going to be at the core of our relationship with Jesus and our salvation? Is it about how well I perform doing something or is it about me receiving grace and mercy and pardon. If you look on your outlines, and I just put a little quote there, joy of any kind is a safeguard against the utilitarian attitude which judges people and things wholly by the use that can be made of them. What can you do for me today? Or what can I do for you today? And if one of us falls short, relationship is done. So joy of any kind is a safeguard against the utilitarian attitude which judges people and things wholly by the use that can be made of them. And Christian joy, the exaltation of spirit that flows from acceptance of the free gifts of God's grace, is the best protection. So Paul's going to go on and says, you know, we want to live in the realm of receiving gracious pardon from the Lord. And we've got to stop grasping at performance. What can I do to merit? What can I do to earn my own way before the Lord? So maybe someday I'll get that ultimate prize, that ultimate performance reward, I'll go to heaven. And Paul is very strongly going to contrast two routes, works or faith received by a gracious act from God. And so he's going to contrast in very, very strong language here that doesn't quite translate well into English the difference between a performance-based approach or a grace and faith-based approach to relationship with Christ. Okay. So we receive joy in the experience of God's grace. And just a key question as we start, will I choose grasping performance, which I think is a joy robber, or will I receive gracious pardon from the Lord, which I think is a joy restorer? We've got to give a little history lesson before we jump in. Now remember, Paul, Jewish believer, right? And if we look at the history of the gospel spreading after Jesus was, uh, died and was resurrected and then ascended, we remember the gospel went to Jewish people first. In the first several chapters of Acts. And so Jewish believers responding to the gospel and then Gentiles, non-Jews, when they responded to the gospel, they essentially at first became Jewish proselytes. They went through circumcision and things like that. But then eventually the message went to the Samaritans, which are you know, half Jew and half other nationalities in Acts 8 there. But this stunning transformation in Acts 10 where Paul begins, he takes the gospel to the Gentiles, and, and Peter receives this vision, and hey, it's okay. The gospel is for everybody, right? And the gospel spreads to Jews and Gentiles, and they didn't have to go through this kind of Jewish process of becoming a believer. And so Jews and, and, and non-Jews alike now have opportunity to respond to the gospel and Peter, who really ministered to Jews, and Paul, who was a Jew but ministered to non-Jews, now partnered in ministry. Peter with mostly Jewish Christians, and Paul was called to share to Gentile people and and then becoming Gentile Christians. But that process was not not without its kind of calamity there. And so Paul goes out and says, hey, there's grace and mercy offered in Jesus Christ. This Moses, the, the law under Moses, the old covenant, that's done. The sacrificial system, the circumcision, everything that went with that is now done. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. We are forgiven. We have a whole new approach. But there was disagreement. And there were some that say, no, we've got to go back. We want, we want faith, but we've got to have works from the old covenant too. And, and we want to mix that together little bit of a history lesson so when we get to verse two paul calls us to lose confidence in self and he uses very dramatic language look at verse two and he, and i put on your outlines we concede the weakness of reliance on human capability if we want to rely on our own ability to to to, to get right with god you know paul wants us to concede that that's a weak approach <clears throat> And so he says, watch out for those dogs. And you say, well, dogs, dogs are cute. Now, In Jesus' day, dogs aren't cute. I'm just letting you know. I mean, now we who's got dogs? Yeah, I mean, I I do too. We like dogs. Jesus' day, not so much. Dogs are, uh, you know, they bark. bark, uh, They carry disease. They're an annoyance. They're not particularly well-liked. If you ever traveled today, for example, what we call the third world, anybody ever done that? You don't just approach, I have many times, you don't just approach random dogs, right? And that kind of captures a little bit for us the sense here. He says, watch out for the dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And he writes, for it is we who are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul, an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Jew, he's sharing with non-Jews, but he has a group of Jewish Christians that say, no, faith in Jesus, but you've got to go back to all this old stuff. And so Paul just cuts them off. He says, watch out for those dogs. And I think it's a synonym here for false teachers. I listed that on your outline there. And he says, watch out for those evil workers. And I put those who teach faith plus good works for salvation. And then he says, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. I'm going to get a little graphic here. I'm sorry, but Paul gets graphic. Okay. And we all kind of know what circumcision is if we're old enough, right? And Paul's using a wordplay here, and circumcision cuts around, right? And I know this is like, wow, I didn't think we'd talk about this in church. The word Paul uses only here in all the Bible for mutilation is to cut off. And any guy understands the difference, So Paul is, and in Paul's day, that's offensive language, just as I'm sharing it now. That's, a pastor, that's kind of offensive, right? But Paul is saying it is so important that we get that we don't approach God based on our own efforts, that people that teach that, he calls them dogs, which is a bad term in his day. He calls them evil workers, and he calls them mutilators, those who focus on the external ritual over internal relationship. And he uses real strong language. You say, well, pastor, are we not supposed to do good things? Of course we do good things. And as someone wrote, a Christian's good works are the result of his faith, not the basis for his salvation. And Paul wants, to, uh, wants us to understand that we're called to, when we approach God, we lose confidence in ourselves, and we concede the weakness of reliance on our own human capability. We are not capable to approach God on our own. Look a little closer at verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, so we contrast that mutilation, that cutting off part, with the circumcision, and he's really talking about spiritual circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. See, true worship, true sacrifice, is by God's Spirit, and I put on your outlines this way, we confer see what i do to see what god does in me there's a key difference and that he says there's no point about boasting in ourselves and we don't do it on our own but we do it by the spirit of god who works in us god himself is what he's the divine initiator right he works in us and through us and if we're going to boast about anything we boast about what god does in us Someone wrote this way, Christians are rightfully described as possessing a triumphant, exultant, boastful attitude, but not in themselves, however, nor in their accomplishments or personal goodness, but in Christ Jesus. If we're going to boast about anything, we we boast about who Jesus is. And so Paul very loudly, very clearly wants us to lose confidence in ourselves. Whatever work we have just won't cut it. We are in Capable and if we act like we want to mix. oh, I got to earn my way I got to do it on my own. I got to make it and and god will accept me. He says wow huh. uh, We need to lose all confidence in that instead we worship by the spirit of god It's him who initiates in us And we glory in christ. We don't boast in ourselves. We glory in who jesus is Let's keep going He goes on says, okay, we tend to want to boast about ourselves. We tend to want to take pride in who we are and what we've done. And so Paul reviews who he is. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And you think about Paul. Paul, you know, in, in terms of the old covenant, right? He's all the way Jewish. Right? He's, he's all the way in Israel. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's not a proselyte. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's not from Ishmael back in the Old Testament. I'm not going to explain all these analogies. You can write them down and look here. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's one of the chosen people. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That's one of the favorite tribes. That's one of Joseph. If you go back to Genesis, one of Joseph's favorite. And they're one of the tribes that didn't really, even under the worst at times, they tended to stay faithful. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he puts it. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, and in Jesus' day we think Pharisee, those are the hypocrites... But, you know, under the Old Covenant, those are the ones that were the most strict observance. They were the political and religious leaders, and they were known for most strictly following, in fact, so much so that they added stuff all over. And so they followed those too, and they made those out like these new regulations were were as important as the old ones. So he says, I went overboard. And in fact, in defending the faith, he says, I persecuted the church. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. Paul was, used to be Saul. I remember, he was there when Stephen was stoned, right? And killed, and he persecuted Christians. He says, I was zealous for legalistic righteousness. He says, I was faultless. I just did everything. <clears throat> Consider all the ways we trust in our own efforts. Right? I just made a list in terms of religious practices. Maybe it's about church attendance. Um, going through ceremonies like communion or, or baptism. What about ministry service? You know, uh, Defending the faith. Or maybe just high achievement. Hey, I'm a, I'm a high achiever. Maybe it's family background. We trust in that. Maybe it's our ethnic pedigree, right? You know, sometimes you say, well, I'm of the right race. We're superior than others. Foolishness like that. What about moral superiority, right? Rhetorical skill. This is one of the most linguistically uh, skillful passages in all the Bible, and we don't catch it in English. And so it's, 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 it's unstated, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but how Paul crafts this passage, it's as if he's crafting as well as he possibly can and just say, hey, look how linguistically good I am, and pff, I'm going to shove that aside too, <laughs> What about financial success or meeting of legalistic standards, service, uh, success in life, financial increase? All these ways we measure ourselves and we think, hey, God would need to, would want to, would be willing to accept me. So we need to consider all the ways we trust in our own efforts. What's on my list of human achievements? What's on your list of human achievements? And sometimes, when we're honest with ourselves, the more successful we are, the more we think that I just can make it on my own. Paul goes on and he calls us to lose confidence in ourselves. And here's that contrast between a performance approach or a pardon approach, between a works righteousness or a grace or faith righteousness. And he says, I want you to gain confidence in Jesus. But whatever, look at verse seven, but whatever, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And he wants us to reconsider the advantage of accomplishment versus Christ. We're all about achievement in our culture, aren't we? You know, how well we've done in life, how well we've done with our family, our kids, and in sports, right? I'm not sure necessarily Paul's saying, hey, you know, taking care of your family financially and, and doing your best at things, you know, doing double centuries like I tried to do way back and all that. Those are okay. But he's saying if we pile up our achievement and think, hey, God, look at me. Don't you want me? See, that's the wrong approach. And he wants us to consider the relative advantage of accomplishment versus Grace in Christ, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Someone wrote this way: one of my professors, Paul, formerly regarded all these things that he possessed and others as contributing to God's acceptance of him. All those good things about Paul, he says, yeah, God will want me because I have this list. And he writes, yet he had come to learn on the Damascus road and sense then that such fleshly advantages did not improve his position with God. Rather, they constituted hindrances because the more of them that Paul had, the more convinced he was that God would accept him for his work's sake. Each of his advantages strengthened his false hope of salvation. I think that's why the Bible says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Because the more advantages we accumulate, the more we think... We got what it takes. Paul says, no, we gain confidence in Christ. We, we, we approach God with faith, receiving grace. Look at verses 8 and 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. You know that extreme language you used before about circumcision and mutilation? Here's another extreme. Just throwing it out there. Rubbish is way too mild. Rubbish, this word here, it's only used here in the Bible, was, was used for uh, trash. Could be used for, um, how, about how I'll say this gently, fertilizer. In, in, in sources outside the Bible, in ancient Greek, it was used to refer to half-decayed uh, corpses. Really strong, offensive language, even in, in, in Paul's day. He says, all these things, on consideration, when I'm really thinking, I consider them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from what I do, my own ability, my own achievement, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He has a strong contrast between a works approach to the Lord or a grace or faith approach. And he calls us to receive relationship and rightness, this righteousness, through faith in Christ. We receive relationship and rightness, righteousness, through faith in Christ. In fact, he says, I consider all these other ways of approach as if they were dung." He goes on in the last two verses i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead he calls us to rejoice in the personal powerful and living christ and he's not saying well i hope i get resurrected from the dead the sense here is this resurrection lifestyle now. This new life, this personal life of knowing Jesus, that's the personal part. The power of his resurrection, that's the powerful part. And to attain to the resurrection from the dead, that's the living part. It's all about rejoicing in a personal, powerful, and living relationship with Jesus. Grace and I have been jogging uh, quite a bit together this time of year. Uh, little newts come out on the road. You ever seen those out on Jackson Quarry and other? And what happens when they come out on the road? Yeah, they get squished. And so if you jog, you know, most days, you can track what happens to these poor little newts. And so you jog by. Hey, there's hey little newt. Next day, newt doesn't look so good. Day after that, that newt is still there, but he looks worse. There was a little squirrel on the side of the road that uh, got hit about four days ago. And usually, you know, some bird comes in. But, you know, for three or four days, that little squirrel, we jog by, oh, hey, squirrel. And it's dead. And it gets worse and worse. It becomes as a half-moldering corpse that's not so appetizing. The contrast that Paul makes, and we've got to wrap up, I know, between a legalistic human capability approach is that moldering, decaying, squished newt saying, "All, all the stuff that I could add up it's like that three or four day old that's not new that's just squished in on Jackson Quarry Road and just kind of moldering, compared to the surpassing greatness of receiving pardon, and grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ. And he says, "Am I?" And, and, and so, key question: Am I enjoying the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? Are you enjoying the surpass, surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? And that's really a yes or no question, right? Because Paul makes it a, a strong contrast here. Am I trusting in myself and my own works? Am I trusting in a, some faith plus some works? And Paul says, all that is that little squish noot Or am I trusting only in forgiveness and love and mercy found in knowing Jesus? And he says, that's good. In fact, he calls it surpassingly great. And in fact, he starts this whole section. That's how we rejoice. If we focus on that performance side, I don't know about you, I'm going to fail. Over and over and over again. So are you. If you say, I haven't failed yet, you will, I promise. Right. What's it going to be? Trust in Christ? Or trust in yourself? father um